give a saxophonist a set of drumsticks and that's what you get. <laughs> I know. We cut you off every time, Andrew. So sorry, buddy. <laughs> Folks, that's it, I think, of notices. We now get a time to say quick, quick hello. And then we're going to welcome Lockie up to bring us the word. We're very excited. Have a short break. Kids, head out to your Sunday School OSH program and uh, we'll resume very shortly.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'll get you to take a seat. Welcome, Locke. Come on up. Whilst you're here, I might um, ask you if you pray with me. I did I'd forget love to pray. With you. Uh, thank you. Uh, not for me, but for our crew down at Manham. So Pastor Daniel, uh, Joy Marks. I think Louise is in partnership with that. They're heading up a kids' activity down at Manham. Not on the sh- not on the shores. Up at the high school this time. But that's bold, and it's it's servanthood, uh, and it's something that we must must cover. I think as the family that covers around them. So let's pray over that group of people and, and people participating. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to minister and witness your love and word to children, to families who may know of you, who may not know of you, or have questions. Lord God, we just ask for your hand over their time down there at Manham, for the people involved in organising it, for the hearts and words to be, to be just for you, for your timing to be right, for your hand of protection over them, for safety and just for a wonderful, wonderful time for everyone just to witness and experience your love. We thank you for this opportunity. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I think most of you know the Lockie Hodgson. I'm going to hand it over to him. For those of you who are visiting with us, Lockie has been part of our church... For a while. For a while now. What was the, what was the year he was born, Mum and Dad? 98, yes. Uh, Lockie is definitely part of uh, the furniture and family here, but uh, he has ventured on to a wonderful journey with God. But he's going to bring us the word this morning. And I thank you, Lockie, for coming to our church again, mate. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about stains. They're not very fun, are they? I wonder if you've had a, a bad or somewhat embarrassing experience with them. Maybe it was that time you're out with your family at a nice Indian restaurant. That little drop of curry falls off your fork onto your nice, clean pants. Maybe it's that date at a nice restaurant and someone bumps the table a little bit and before you know it, your pristine white shirt is covered in red wine. Or that time when you're running late for a job interview, dressed in a nice white shirt and tie, and suddenly your nose starts dripping blood all over you. No matter how long you spend in the bathroom, scrubbing with some toilet paper and water, can't quite make those spots go away. Nothing you do seems to work. It's not nice, is it? And even if you haven't experienced that exactly, you know what that kind of thing would feel like. You can feel the weird looks that it would bring from other people. You can almost hear their thoughts and their judgment. What a slob. Ew. Gross. Yuck. You feel dirty and unclean. But what can you do about it? Nothing much. What if I told you that the Bible has something to say to a similar situation to this? That we meet someone in the Old Testament who also has a stain problem. We're introduced to this situation in Zechariah chapter 3. And as we go through the text, firstly, we'll see how there's a problem. That sin stains. Secondly, we'll see that God has a plan for removing those stains. And thirdly, that that plan is achieved in Jesus. So why don't you follow along on the screen as I read Zechariah 3 out for us. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. 
The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. So Zechariah's vision starts off, and we're taken in this vision into God's courtroom, and immediately we're shown the problem. Sin stains. In verse 3, we see that the clothes of Joshua, the high priest of Israel, are in a pretty sorry state. They're filthy. And by filthy, it means covered in filth. And by filth, it means excrement. Yuck. Just as a quick aside, homefresh.com lists this as one of the eight hardest stains to remove. So yeah, his clothes are pretty gross. And they're not going to be clean anytime soon. So Joshua is here. He's standing in garments covered in filth. And here he's a picture of Israel, of the whole people. And this is something that is really important for us to remember as we go through this passage. His job as high priest is to represent God to Israel and represent Israel to God. So when we talk about Joshua, we should imagine the whole people of Israel. And here we see how he represents Israel to God. As a people covered in dirtiness and filth, stained and unclean because of their sin and their rebellion against God. And this is a problem because Israel as a whole, and specifically Joshua as high priest, cannot come into God's presence while they are unclean. There are chapters and chapters in the first five books of the Bible which talk about how priests are to make themselves ritually clean before coming into God's presence in the temple and serving there. And while I don't think there's any specific chapter and verse, I'm pretty sure that being covered in excrement would exclude you from entering into the temple, let alone being in God's very presence. But it even gets worse. Not only is Joshua covered in filth and can't come into God's presence to, fill his, to fulfill his role as high priest, but Satan is standing at God's side, constantly pointing out all of the stains, constantly accusing and reminding God of his people's sins. Do you see that stain there, God? That's when Israel worshipped idols instead of you. Oh, and that one on the sleeve. That's when they didn't obey your rules about caring for the oppressed and the poor. Oh, don't forget about that one. And on and on and on. It's bad enough to be dirty and covered in grossness. But to have someone pointing it out again and again and again makes it even worse. 
And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you can relate to Joshua's situation. You feel like you're stained, not only because of those dirty marks on your white shirt that you can't get rid of, but the dirty stains on your heart, on your mind, or on your soul. You feel unclean, covered in grime, totally unfit to approach a perfectly clean, holy, pure God. And you hear the accuser talking about these stains. His voice is in your head saying, you're not good enough. You're too dirty. You're too stained. You'll never be clean. Maybe you hear his voice in the voices of those around you, reminding you of all those times you've failed, all those times you've gone and dirtied yourself. They don't believe you'll ever be clean. Maybe they're right, you start to think. Maybe I am too stained. Maybe I am too far gone. Maybe I can't clean myself up. And you'd be right. But luckily for us, Zechariah's vision continues. And he sees something amazing and encouraging. He sees that God has a plan for dealing with Satan's accusations and with Joshua's dirty stains. So what is God's plan? Well, we see that it consists of a couple of actions and a couple of promises. Firstly, God silences Satan's accusations. In verse 2, we read, God's response to Satan's accusations of Josiah, of Joshua, sorry, is to rebuke him. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? God tells Satan, to be quiet, to back off, to cut it out with the constant reminders of sin. Why is that? It's not because the sin and the stains and the dirtiness isn't real. Satan's accusations are true, but they carry no weight because God has decided to choose Jerusalem, to make Israel his chosen people, to love them and to be their God even if they don't reciprocate or respond in kind. He has chosen to be faithful to his covenant with them, even when they're not faithful to him. And this is exemplified in Joshua's own life. He is one of the ones who got to return from exile to Babylon. He survived the judgment God brought on Israel for their unfaithfulness. God didn't fully destroy them like their sins deserved, but he saved some including Joshua. In this way, Joshua is like a stick that's been touched and affected by the fire, by God's judgment in exile, but not completely burnt up because God is faithful to the people he chooses. And Satan's constant accusation and reminders aren't going to change that. Secondly, we see that God gives Joshua new, clean clothes to wear. God doesn't just silence Satan and then pretend that the problem disappears just because he's not being reminded about it all the time. He doesn't leave Joshua as he is. No, he actually intervenes and fixes the problem. We see this start in verse 4. God says, take off his filthy clothes. When this is done, he explains to Joshua what he's just done. He says, see, I have taken away your sin." Wow, that's pretty incredible. 
the thing that was separating Joshua from God, the thing that was getting in the way of him fulfilling his duty as a high priest, has been removed. And it wasn't Joshua himself who removed it with lots of scrubbing and laundry detergent. He wouldn't have gotten anywhere with that. It was God himself who took those soiled garments away, who cleansed and freed Joshua from his sin. But not only that, he doesn't just take away his dirty clothes and leave him naked, leave him a blank slate. No, what he does then is to provide Joshua with new clothes, fine garments, clothes that are fitting for a high priest, clothes that will allow him to perform his role to come into the presence of God to intercede for Israel. It's not just a removal, it's an exchange. God takes the dirtiness and gives cleanness in return. He takes sin and he gives righteousness. Thirdly, we see that God promises that if Joshua obeys him and serves him, he will be given a place in heaven. Verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. This verse helps us to see that God has worked in Joshua's life for a reason. He has a plan. He didn't just take away his sin and give him clean clothes. He gives him a job to do. He saved him from his sin for a reason, for a purpose. God wants to work through him if he stays clean and pure. And the outcome of this purity that's given by God is that Joshua will have a place, have standing in God's presence in heaven. Now, if we just stop there for a second and zoom out a little bit, If we think for a moment about where in the Bible timeline Zechariah Zechariah was prophesying, we see something that's pretty cool. Unfortunately, I can't quote the exact dates of Zechariah's ministry, let alone the whole history of Israel, off the top of my head. But thankfully, someone has made a little bit of a timeline that we can see up on the screen. Hopefully, you can read that. On the left, we have big names like Abraham, Moses, and David. Then we see that after David, the kingdom splits. And soon after that, the northern kingdom's wiped out by the Assyrians and comes to an end. But if we go down to the bottom and we follow along, we see some of the prophets that we know. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Then we see that big dip, a big moment in history. This is the invasion of the southern kingdom by Babylon for 70 years. And after 70 years, we see them come back and they're God's people again. And very soon after that, we see that Zechariah appears. That's where the big red arrow thing is. He's prophesying to a group of people who've only just come back to their promised land after 70 years in captivity, in exile. Why does this matter? Well, the prophets tell us that this captivity and exile into Babylon was because of Israel's sin. Listen to what Jeremiah has to say. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn, and an everlasting ruin. 
I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voice of bride and bridegroom, the sounds of millstones and the light of lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Because you have not listened to my words, because the people of Israel haven't obeyed God, because they've sinned and rebelled against him, this is what happens. But then God decides to bring them out of exile, back into their land, back into his presence, despite the fact that they are a rebellious and sinful people. He has taken away their sinfulness and given them a means of returning to him. When Zechariah's first audience heard this prophecy in chapter 3 about Joshua being given clean garments to replace his filthy ones, they would have known that God was actually talking about what he had just done to the nation of Israel by saving them out of captivity and exile and bringing them back to himself. He silences their enemies and accusers. He chooses them for himself. He allows them into his presence. He continues to want to work through them. And he continues to identify them as his people and he as their God. He wants that relationship with them to continue. It's exactly the same way we see him treat Joshua. But there's one last promise that God makes in this vision that Zechariah is seeing. And it's probably the most important one. It shows us that this vision and prophecy that God is showing his prophet Zechariah isn't only a way of showing what he's done in the past, but also a promise for the future. Because God's people aren't going to be able to keep themselves clean for long. Left to their own devices, we see rebellion and sin occur again and again and again throughout the rest of the Old Testament. If God really wants his people to be truly and permanently clean, he's going to have to do something even more miraculous. Look at me with what look with me at what he promises to do from verses 8 to 10. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. The point that God makes is that Joshua and his other priestly companions are signs and symbols of something that is still to come. The whole work and purpose of the Israelite priests points forward to something. What God has done by bringing his people out of exile is foreshadowing something greater. And the thing that all of this points forward to is God's servant, the branch. Now this branch language links back to some of the earlier prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where God promised that he would raise up a branch or a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A promise that he would bring this long-awaited Messiah from David's line, who is going to be a new, better king, and rescue Israel from their oppressors. And it's interesting to note that in this passage in Zechariah, the branch is not only associated with the office of king, but also with the office of priest. By this servant, by this branch, God will remove all of the sin of the land 
in a single day. Just as God took away Joshua's filthy garments and replaced them with clean ones, so too this branch will take away all the sins of the land. It won't be through years of repeated sacrifices and calls to holiness. No, it will happen in a single day. And the outcome of this cleansing? Neighbours will sit together under their own vines and fig trees. There will be peace. There will be prosperity. What an incredible promise for a people just returned from exile. And thus ends the vision. And Zechariah and Israel and we, as we're reading along, we're left waiting for this fulfilment of the promise God has just given. But here today, this morning, are we still waiting? Is this promise of God still unfulfilled? No, it's not. A few centuries after this vision of Zechariah, this vision that Zechariah has, we see someone else enter into the story. Jesus. And we, along with the rest of Israel, we ask ourselves, could this be the long-awaited Messiah? Could this be the branch? Well, he comes from the right family. He's a descendant of David. He claims to deal with people's sin, just like a priest would. Maybe he's the one the priesthood has been pointing forwards to. But in the end, it turns out that he's only acknowledged as Israel's king by the charge written against him as he hangs on a cross, slowly dying. Surely this can't be the servant, the priest, the king, who is going to take away the sins of the land in a single day. Well, actually, something miraculous happens. After three days of being dead, this Jesus is resurrected. He comes back to life. And from then on, his followers claim that this is how he was able to remove the sin of the land in a single day. Through his death and through his resurrection, he defeated sin and death. They now no longer have power. They no longer hold his people captive. A great exchange has taken place, just like we saw with Joshua. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just like with Joshua, if we follow Jesus, he takes away our filthy garments, stained by sin, and gives us his righteousness to wear instead. He deals with the mess we've made, something we could never have done by ourselves, not even with the strongest laundry detergent there is. And this exchange is once and for all. Sin is taken away in a single day. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way when he talks about Jesus as high priest. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, this Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. How wonderful is that? How incredible is that? How amazing. And I wonder what encouragement you need to hear from Zechariah chapter 3 today or this week. 
Are you feeling dirty and stained because of your sin? Are you falling for Satan's lie that you'll never be clean enough or good enough? That God would never want to be near someone like you, let alone bless you and work through you? Friend, let me tell you that God does want you. He has chosen you. And not even Satan's accusations can change that. You can be clean once and for all because of the work of Jesus, the branch and the high priest. You can exchange a life of filthy garments for a life clothed with his righteousness. God does want to use you. He does want to grow you. And he promises that if you follow him, you too will have a place in heaven. So take heart. The branch has removed all the stains of sin in a single day. Because of that, you can find peace, you can find rest, you can find abundance sitting together with your brothers and sisters under the shade of your own vine and fig tree. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you love us and have chosen us. Like you loved Israel and chose Israel, even despite their sin and their rebellion. We're sorry for all of the things that we do that are not good, that are not the way you would have us live, that put ourselves up as gods and do things the way we want to do them rather than obeying you. We thank you that you have promised to forgive us. We thank you that in Jesus our sinful selves can be taken away and we can have his righteousness and his goodness. And we thank you for the promise that you will love us and be with us always, forever and ever. Amen.